Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then we'll look at, at 1 Timothy 3, the last part of it. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your kindness, your mercy. And I pray, dear God, that you would speak to us through your word. Please help us that we might be better ministers of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, as you know, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 13, uh, Paul is talking about the leadership in the church. He's talking about uh, overseers, uh, pastors, elders, and then he goes on to talk about deacons, and as some believe, deaconesses, um, in verse 11. He's talking about leadership, and primarily with regard to leadership, he is referring to character. Now, I believe that the New Testament uh, sets out for us in a manner that is quite clear um, the basic structure of how a church should be governed. Um, yet, over my many, many years in Christianity, I have seen different, um, even sometimes contradictory, um, manifestations of, of that governance. I've seen churches that were far more congregational. I've seen churches that were far more elder-led. I have seen churches that there was a definite plurality and parity of elders, and I've seen it where it seemed like one man. Um, now, I'm not, saying, um, I'm not saying that those things are okay, but what I want to tell you is something that I have seen to be true, that even in leadership models that I thought did not really line up with the New Testament, um, some of them functioned quite well and the church grew and was edified because even though the structure was not necessarily that biblical, the leadership involved were godly, godly men. They were humble men. They walked in the fear of the Lord. Uh, they put the congregation first. Uh, they, did not they did not use the lambs, but they used up themselves for the sake of God's flock. And so I want you to know that um, the leadership model is very, very important. We need to seek to conform everything in the church to the word of God. Yet, even with a proper leadership model, if you do not have men of character, men of humility, men who walk in the fear of the Lord, Nothing is going to go right. And so here's a thing that I've often asked myself, you know, what what is the greatest need of my wife? The greatest need of my wife is to have a better husband. Uh, the greatest need of my children is to have a better father. Uh, the greatest need of my church is to have a better minister. And it's a constant reminder that the best thing I can do for those that somehow are involved in my life is for me to be more Christ-like. Um, ministers will devote themselves regularly, as they should, to the preparation of their sermons. 
or maybe even to studying the scriptures so that they might be more effective counselors. But unless you're first going to the scriptures for your own soul, you're going to be doing great damage to yourself, your family, and to the church. This is very, very important. And I cannot tell you how often this is neglected. And I would, be, uh, I would not be transparent if I didn't tell you that in my own daily life, it's a fight. Um, here at Heart Cry, there is so much to do. There are 300 missionary families to take care of. There were Bible translations to work on. There are properties to purchase overseas. There are all kinds of battles. And because of that, um, we can have a tendency to neglect the care of our own souls and our own growth in Christ. Now, before we get to our text, um, you know, I, I've shared this with you before, but maybe I need to share it again. And that is this. Studying and praying with your boots on and your boots off. Studying and praying with your boots on that has to do with studying the scriptures, you know, hard work to prepare sermons or to figure out the meaning of a certain Greek phrase or Hebrew word. Uh, studying commentaries and all sorts of things, preparing sermons, preparing uh, for counseling. Um, that's work. That's work. Praying with your boots on intercessory prayer. You know, fighting for the church, fighting for souls, fighting for individual believers. That's work. And if that's your relationship, your only relationship with the word of God and prayer, your soul's in danger. It is in danger. And my question to you would be, how much time do you spend? Whether on your knees or sitting at a coffee table uh, with a cup of coffee, sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee, how, how much time do you spend simply reading the word of God for enjoyment? Reading the word of God to hear from God, maybe marking up your Bible, maybe writing notes just just to hear from him, just to feed your own soul. Um, over the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a great emphasis on, you know, um, reformed theology and the Puritans and the reformers and the early evangelicals and expository preaching and, and being biblical um, all of that is so, so, so important. But you can get lost in all of that. You really can. So my question to you would be, are you also imitating the fathers in the way that they read scripture, uh, memorized and meditated upon scripture, the way that they fed upon scripture? Do you feed upon scripture or do you just try to figure out what it means? There's a big difference. And if you're a person who's just trying to figure out how it means. Or what it means, then I can guarantee on Sunday morning, your sermon is probably really, really uh, correct. But I don't know how much food is on the plate you're serving. It's more than just figuring out. It's feeding. Um, 
Now, let, let me say this also about <clears throat> the busy schedule of the pastor and sermon preparation. Um, you know, so let, let's say a pastor is going to preach on Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The first two days, he does all his Greek work. He understands the meaning of the words, the relationship of the phrases in the original language. Maybe he's done some commentary work. Maybe he's written an outline, having diagrammed the passage. And uh, he gets to about Friday. He understands it. Seems like he can speak it clearly. Um, but usually there is a stage that's missing. And it's missing either out of neglect or time. And that is, once you understand the passage, do you feed upon it? Do you feed upon it until it warms your heart? Do you feed upon it until it has an impact on your life? Do you feed upon the text? Brothers, um, for about the last seven months or so, I've been watching a lot of sermons. And I've hardly, as a matter of fact, I don't think I've heard any heresy in any of those sermons. Different people, I've just been studying them, studying the way people preach. Um, a lot of correct exegetical work, a lot of solid, solid hermeneutics and, and all sorts of things. But um, here's a few things I noticed. A lot of People say things in an hour that they actually could say in 20 minutes. <laughs> Not saying that you shouldn't, that you should preach 20 minutes. There's just so much in that sermon that really doesn't have a lot to do with anybody, oftentimes. Another thing is, you not only study the Word of God, you not only study God, you study the people you're preaching to. What do they need? Are you feeding their soul? with your correct understanding, or are you going further and feeding their soul with the very thing that fed your soul in that study? Brothers, it's so much more important. I mean, not more important, but preaching is so much more than just saying things that are correct. Has that sermon impacted you, impacted your character? Has it changed you somehow? Did it encourage you, motivate you, uh, challenge you, feed you? You know what I mean by feeding, don't you? Remember, you know, when you when you read a passage and God just seems to really speak to your heart. Maybe you've understood the passage for 20 years, but that particular time when you read it, it feels like, oh, my. God has really touched upon a nerve. I I really needed that. So I just wanted to encourage you that when we look at verses 1 through 13, the most important thing is character. And character comes out of feeding upon Scripture. Feeding upon it. But the same Scripture upon which you feed, the people of God need the same. They, they really do. Um, so now let's, let's go on from here. And we're in verse, verse 14. We'll read 14 and 15. Um, 
Paul says in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, um, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, he says, I'm writing to you these things, hoping to come to you before long. Now, hoping to come to you before long. That's encouraging to me. Why? You know, Paul was an apostle, wasn't he? I mean, if anybody knew the mind and will of God, it, it was it was Paul. Also, sometimes apostles, I mean, they could, you know, see into the future a bit. I mean, they they were something quite special, weren't they? And yet here we see the apostle Paul. He doesn't say. I'm coming to you on a specific date or I am certain I am going to come to you. He said, I'm hoping to come to you. You know, there are so many things in the ministry and in life that we hope for. I hope to go home tonight and play with my six year old daughter. Um, I would hope sometime to revisit France before I go to heaven. Um, there are so many things I hope for, but it's only hope. I can't say that tomorrow I'm going to go this to this or that city and I am going to do business and then come back. So little me, <laughs> Paul Washer, he's not certain about a lot of things, which causes him to have to cast himself upon the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Do you see that? But not just us little people, big people like the Apostle Paul, like Peter. They didn't know everything. They didn't know how everything was going to turn out. They didn't know necessarily all the time, what they were going to do the next day, they lived in hope that no matter what happened, God was in control. Now, I want to say something else. It's a little bit of a departure, but I'm older now, so you have to let me do these things. Um, you know, when, we're, when we know that we're in the right and that we are uh, above error for the moment, or sin, we're not, you know, there's no confusion. We're walking with God. It's easy to hope in his sovereignty. He's leading me because, well, you know, I'm believing and I'm righteous. But never forget, hope is not only for those who are walking in the midst of success. Hope is for those also who are walking in the midst of failure, even when it's their own. And what I want you to see is this. Not even your sin. Or your misguided error is enough. To extinguish hope. Why? Because of the goodness and the power of God. The commitment of God to his people that he who began a good work in you will Finish it. And so here we see the Apostle Paul, not sure, but hoping to come to them before long.
but trusting that God was in absolute control of his life. Now, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, which was a real possibility. In case I am delayed, I write so that one will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. I think this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. With regard to the church, but also with regard to our attitude towards scripture. You know, when someone comes to me and I don't want to in any way be smart aleck, I'm, I'm just trying to. Um, give emphasis, so treat it as a hyperbole or an exaggeration. When someone comes to me and says they believe that the scriptures are inspired, I almost want to yawn when they tell me that the scriptures are infallible and inerrant. I'm also not that impressed. The question in our minds ought to be. Are the scriptures sufficient? I believe they are inspired. I believe they are inerrant without error, and I believe they're infallible, that they're incapable of error. Because they were they were given to us by an impeccable, faithful God. The question is, are they sufficient? Do I have everything in scripture that I need to know how to conduct myself in the household of God? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. The scriptures are sufficient. Now, that does not mean that there's not knowledge out there. But we can say this, there's no other inspired knowledge out there. There is very useful knowledge. There is knowledge that has uh, vindicated itself over and over again, whether scientific or historic or mathematical, whatever. And so we, we don't want to say that's that's not true. Yet at the same time, if I want to know how to conduct myself in a way that is pleasing to God as an individual and in the context of the church, it is through what is written. You need to know and rely upon your people need to know and rely upon what is written. Now, he says, I'm writing these things. What things? Well, all these things in First Timothy. But it is important to note that in the context, he's writing these things about character. About character. He's gone through 13 verses, basically, of character. That's the major theme that tells me something. There are specific principles in the New Testament that tell us how to manage the church and how to conduct ourselves in the church. There's principles even in this first Timothy about how to ordain, how not to ordain. There's there's first Corinthians chapter 11, uh, 12, uh, 14 uh, about principles about how we should do things in the church. But I think it's particularly important that if you have the right character, you will know how to conduct yourself. So it goes back once again, doesn't it? To character. To character, to Christ like character. And what I want you to see 
is that this is a life long process. Do you want the character of Christ? You must study scripture. Do you want the character of Christ? You must pray. Do you want the character of Christ? You're going to have to be willing to see where there is a contradiction between your conduct and the scriptures, and you're going to have to repent. You're going to have to go through trials. You're going to have to go through discipline. You know, um, you can take some really dirty water and put it in a jar. If you leave it there long enough, what's going to happen is all the dirt's going to settle to the bottom, and that water is going to look very, very clean. So in order to notice the uncleanliness of that water, what do you need to do? You need to shake it up. And when you shake it up, you begin to see that water is not as clean as you thought. That's what trials and discipline do in our lives. We go through very difficult times. We get stirred up. The bad comes to the top. And it's painful to see. But at least it gives us an opportunity to rid ourselves of it through repentance. You know, so many people, brothers, they, they when they think of discipline, they always think of sin. And, and that's not necessarily true. God does discipline us at times because of rebellion. But that discipline is always redemptive. It's not punitive. He's not condemning us. He's saving us even in his discipline. But you also need to realize that discipline is not always the result of sin. When I was a young boy, I wanted to be an athlete. My dad was a good athlete, but my legs were weak. And so uh, when we would finish feeding cattle at the uh, back of our farm, and it was a large farm, about 350 acres. Uh, when we would finish feeding the cattle, I had these big, heavy boots on. And then my father would strap on these ankle weights onto the boots, which made them even heavier. And I would run uh, behind the truck back home. Now, it hurt. It wore me out. My dad did not do that because I had disobeyed him. He did it because I needed to be stronger. So, yes, sometimes discipline comes because of disobedience. But oftentimes the most righteous men will go through terrible trials. It's kind of like that John 15 pruning in order to make them more fruitful. And that's very important for you to understand. But he goes on, he says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. But here he's primarily writing about character. But I find something else in the 13 verses uh, before. Uh, he's talking about character. So conduct is a result of character. But in verse 16, he's talking about the magnificence of the gospel. So I think what we can see here is that my conduct will be guided by a Christ-like character, but conduct is to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that, doesn't he? 
In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, he will say this to the church. He'll say, you know, the love of Christ constrains me. What is a greater manifestation of the love of Christ than the gospel? So Paul isn't saying that his great love for Christ motivated him. Uh, but it, rather, he's saying Christ's great love for Paul motivated him. And so whenever we're talking to the church about character, in order or, or about conduct, we must be careful that we're not superficial and just give them a bunch of principles and not think about their character. Because conduct is a derivative or a product of character. But then also when we tell them that they need to conduct themselves in a certain way, we should not leave them without motivation. We should always set before them that the greatest motivation to godly conduct is the gospel. And Paul says that in Romans 12, doesn't he? He goes, I implore you by the mercies of God to present yourselves to God as a sacrifice. Now, what are those mercies of God? The gospel. All the kindness of God that is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what motivates us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Now, let's go on. He says, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. Again, I, we're going to keep going back to this for a while, but it appears that Paul is saying that godly conduct in the church is counterintuitive. Actually, if we're very clear from our understanding of the Old Testament, we see that all godly conduct is counterintuitive. If we do what is right in our own eyes, we will have trouble. Do you see that? Isn't that, wasn't that the problem in the book of Judges and a warning of the same was given in the book of Deuteronomy? There was no king in Israel. There was no established authority. They weren't hearing from God and therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When young men are getting ready to get married, one of the things I will tell them is whatever you feel like you need to do is probably what you should not do. That's why, you know, Peter says live with your wife in an understanding way. Um, and so when we have a church or an individual believer that is not instructed in the word of God, they are going to live according to their intuition, according to their culture, according to what seems right in their own eyes. And for the most part, it's going to be the contrary of the way that they should act. And again, that's why the teaching of the word of God is so very, very important. Now, let me say this also about conduct and about the people of God. As preachers, and you listen to me very, very carefully, you are to teach them the word of God, the narratives, the principles, uh, the revelations of the person of Jesus, but be very careful, you do not micromanage them with regard to ethics or conduct. 
You have authority to expound the word of God. But you're not the center of the church. And your personal opinion with regard to application is not the end of all things. That's spiritual abuse. Teach the word of God and don't go any further. Make it clear that when something is your suggestion, it's your suggestion. And that the best of men are men at best. Do not micromanage other people's families. Do not micromanage other people's wives. You proclaim the clear principles of God's word. But be very careful that you do not become the fountainhead of all wisdom in your congregation or the one upon whom the spiritual well-being of everybody relies. That's not your place. That belongs to another, and his name is Jesus Christ. You want to direct people not to yourself with your preaching. You want to direct them to Jesus. Okay, let's go on. He says, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, look at the repetition here. Household of God, church of the living God. Now, usually when the, the phrase living God occurs in the Old Testament, it usually has to do with something um, with a stand against idolatry. Uh, idols are dead gods. Uh, they have no breath. They cannot see. They cannot talk or hear. They are not to be feared. He is the living God. But it, it also, when the term living God is used, it's, it's kind of like, hey, <laughs> um, take notice. God has stood up from his throne. He is at attention. There's a seriousness here. There's a solemnness. There's a, a need for careful attention. So he says. It's God's household and God's church. Um, it's not yours. It's not your church. It's not your house. You know, I know some of you a little bit. I know David probably as well as any of the rest of you. Um, but if David came into my house and started telling my wife and my children what to do, I would lovingly tell him, David, this is not your house. This is not your house. And you need to be very careful. Because this is not your house. Uh, you and I will never be more or less than stewards. And stewards, their responsibility is to do only what their master has decreed with regard to their household. If you do less than what he decreed, there is judgment. But I would imagine there is even more judgment if you do more than what was decreed, because now you're moving into the realm of abuse. Do you see that? This is his household, his church. 
They are his called out ones. They are his uh, sons and daughters. And so with, with great trepidation, with fear, we should move in and out of the congregation. But it's also a great comfort, isn't it? Uh, if someone attacks God's household, it's his responsibility also to defend it. If there are times of need and trial, it's his responsibility to care for it. That doesn't diminish the role of the pastor, but it is a comfort. I, I remember years ago, and you can take this um, for whatever it's worth, but I've done this actually a few times. Um, it's funny, on the internet, supposedly I'm a millionaire. I would sure like to find those millions because I would buy a new car. Um, but there have been many times when I've gone out and my car wouldn't start um, throughout my life. And I would say, you know, I'd go, God, your car won't start. <laughs> your car won't start. And, um, and it's the whole idea that if I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, you know, he has obligated himself to care for me. And uh, I love the, the word, the name Adonai, uh, Adon, Lord or Master, Adonai, my Lord. And when I say my Lord, it's reciprocal. It's a reciprocal thing going on there. And what, what do I mean? He is my Lord. So I really have only one responsibility do what he says. But since he's my Lord, he has the responsibility to care for his slave, to protect his slave, to feed his slave, to clothe his slave, and to fix his slave's car. You see, now in the church, it's the same thing. As a pastor, you're going to have great responsibility to feed, protect, guide, um, but ultimately, it's not your congregation. It's not your church. And when things come that are far beyond you, know that they're not far beyond the one who actually owns the church. And that is a very, very comforting thought. So the church, it's the household of God. We hear household, we think of Sons and daughters, we think of a wife, but we also think of ourselves as stewards. You know, the steward that cared for Esther, uh, he didn't dress her in a way that was pleasing to him so much as he knew the king's heart. And he dressed her in a way that would be pleasing to the king. And that's our responsibility. That's our same responsibility. But if you take God's bride and you dress her like a worldly prostitute, uh, it will not go well with you. You dress her in the clothes that the Lord has set out according to his word. Now, he goes on. He calls the church also the pillar and support of the truth.
it doesn't just mean that we preach the truth, but that the whole concept of what God is doing in the world through the revelation of God in the Old Testament, in the law, in the history, historical narratives, in the wisdom literature, in the prophets. It's all about the revelation of what is real, what is true, reality, as God sees it. Everything about the church is to be founded upon the truth, not half-truths, not good ideas, but the church is to be founded upon the truth. And as you're building, Paul calls himself a master builder in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're building, you build each one of those blocks. It needs to be a block of truth, unmixed. You know, that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw at the end, you know, it was part iron in its feet and part clay. Probably representing the Roman Empire that it was so strong in other in some areas and so weak in other areas and it broke apart. Well, I would rather see you build a very, very uh, uh, low wall. With few bricks, as long as every one of those bricks were pure. Rather than build a very, very high wall that each one of those bricks was a mixture of truth and error. I'm afraid that a lot of big churches or a lot of high walls, let's say. They gather, not all of them. I mean, there are big churches that are very biblical, so we, we don't want to go down that road. But we have to admit that there are some churches and ministries where it's it's such a mixture of truth and error that even though it grows and grows and grows, sooner or later, the wall's going to come down. And so, you know, truth needs to govern everything that we do, our conduct, our speech, everything, because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Where else are you going to find truth in this world? Are you going to find it in, in the news media, the politicians, the scientists? They may have much excellent data, but truth is more than data. Who can present to the world a correct view of the world? Only the church. Who can present a correct view of God to the world? Only the church. But if we're not studying the scriptures, we ourselves will not have a correct interpretation of reality. Our view will be distorted and so will our words and what we build upon will be half truths at best. You're a truth merchant. And that's it. Now, let me give you a warning. I, I know at least something of the men with whom I am speaking. And I don't think that you would willingly teach heresy or half truths. You want to treat you, most of you that I know would want to teach the full counsel of God. But there is a problem on the other side. It's not that you don't teach the truth. Beware that you don't go further than teaching the truth. 
You know, one of the hardest things for us to do is to say, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Um, uh, sometimes people ask questions about what they should do in their personal life. We can only take them as far as scripture. But if we go beyond scripture, we're helping them build a wall with half truths. Give them the scriptures. Trust God with his people. Give them the scriptures and don't give them more. Because eventually that can result in some very bad things. Even spiritual abuse. Now, verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. This is a, a very difficult text. We, we know that by common confession, he must be referring to those within the church. Within the church, the common confession. Um, that if it's a true church, it's great confession is going to be this, the gospel. Okay, If it's prosperity or other things, uh, just pack your suitcase and run as quickly and as far away as you can. But in, in every true individual Christian, in every true uh, gathering of people, the great confession is going to be the gospel. Now, I want to say something that you and I must maintain a healthy balance. And that is this. If someone is truly believing and confessing the gospel, I'm going to give my life for them. Now, there are other doctrines, and I believe all doctrine is important, all of it. But there are some doctrines that define whether or not I can have fellowship with a certain person as a Christian. And if they're professing faith in Christ. Then I need to take note. I need to take note. And although there may be differences of doctrine and other minor issues, I need to love them. I need to pray for them. I need to hope for them. And if I'm given the opportunity, maybe I need to instruct them. Now, that doesn't mean everybody who professes faith in Christ is going to preach in my pulpit. That doesn't mean we're going to work in some united uh, missionary effort with every person who says great is the mystery of godliness. Now, here's something I want to talk to you for a moment about missions, and you need to be very balanced in this, particularly in areas like uh, Quebec and in areas like France. And now the same can be said, I guess, for the United States, you know, where you see so few people professing faith in Christ that if anybody professes faith in Christ, we all think we all ought to work together. That's not necessarily true. Many, many mission or missionary organizations over the years have gone astray because they've made evangelism the thing that brings them all together. Well, that, that's not biblical. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses evangelize. Um, the Mormons evangelize. And I've even met, um, I've met Muslim evangelists that were wanting to win the world. I mean, real evangelists, not terrorists, proclaimers, kind people who wanted to win the world. 
Um, so evangelism is not the thing that unites us. What unites us? Truth. A clear understanding of the basic or fundamental truths of the gospel. So he goes, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now we know that Paul, especially in the book of Ephesians, read the first three chapters of Ephesians, he refers to the gospel as a mystery. Sometimes the gospel as a mystery, sometimes the inclusion of the Gentiles as, as a mystery. But a mystery is something that was hidden. It doesn't necessarily have to be hidden completely, but something hidden or shrouded that then is revealed in greater light. Now, so he's talking about the gospel here. That, you know, it's amazing to me in Jeremiah 31 when it talks about the new covenant. You know, he says, they will all know me. And uh, when I've worked in the jungles of Peru and you see a little, little old lady who is illiterate. But can... Uh, but can speak the gospel, understands the gospel and speaks it about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, his, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, uh, that he's king of kings and lord of lords. And, and you realize something. Oh, my, you know, this lady knows more than Isaiah. Um, you see? So it, it's a beautiful thing that that the gospel has been revealed um, since the, the incarnation, uh, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord, we have this great preponderance or abundance of, of knowledge. Now, the mystery of godliness, it, some take it as, as very the mystery of God, the great revelation of God. Some take it to refer to more with regard to piety, it is the great revelation that leads us to true piety. And, and remember that Paul has been talking about character. It leads us to a right relationship with God. It leads us to a correct devotion. Um, you know, there are so many people who can claim a devotion to God, but it's not according to knowledge. Paul talks about the Jews, I believe, in Romans 10, where they, they had a, a zeal for God, but not... Katanosis, not according to knowledge. You see, I remember there was a saint in South America, a, a woman saint who um, she she basically just starved and beat herself. Um, and so she had a devotion. But it wasn't according to knowledge. You see, so. The gospel is the thing, the message that brings us into a relationship of proper devotion to God. And, and I, I want to tell you something. I have lived. I'm going to be uh, 61 here in a few days on 9-11 is my birthday. <laughs> um, I've seen all kinds of fads. I've even seen, seen things that, I guess, motivated me for a, a certain period of time. I have gone through so many hardships, probably not 
more than most or more difficult than most. Maybe I'm just weaker than most and they seem so hard. I've gone through a lot of hard things that at times made me want to quit. Um, just kind of give up the ghost, as we say. No motivation has been strong enough to keep me except for the motivation that I find in a Savior who bled for me and died for me and rose again from the dead for me and sits at the right hand of God interceding for me. It's the gospel that has kept me. And sometimes in the ministry, men, you may not think it. You may not. It's true. You, you may think, oh, nothing could ever turn me away from ministry or the church. Um, be very careful with those words. Because what God will do is he will bring you to a point where the only thing that keeps you is a savior who bled. The gospel. You know. One day we'll probably hear David Romer say something like this. If it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would just go back to being a professional surfer <laughs> and living on the beach. But it's that gospel that motivates us to godliness. It motivates us to stay faithful, to continue on, to persevere. It's the gospel. And I wouldn't have it any other way because I think any other motivation is almost idolatry. Why don't you walk out that door? The preacher was asked. He said, because of the bleeding savior that I would have to walk through. I cannot. Polycarp, you know, when they were going to, they drug him out of the chariot, and they beat him and burn him and tell him to renounce Christ. And he says, Christ has never forsaken me. He's never renounced me. I will not renounce him. So he goes on to describe this mystery of godliness. And there are a lot of great preachers in the world that have lived, whether it's Flavel or Spurgeon or I really like Alistair Begg. Um, guys like that, I mean, just I could listen to them all day long. As a matter of fact, when I listen to them or read them, I wonder if I shouldn't go start surfing with David Romare instead of preaching. Um, um, but I don't care who you are. You can't preach this text according to what it deserves. Not if you're Martin Lloyd-Jones. It, it doesn't matter. Even uh, if you were to take a glorified R.C. Sproul, not, not, even now in heaven, he couldn't do justice to this. And so we can just kind of stand back and look at it and think preachers and preaching is quite pitiful. Quite pitiful. And he says, he was revealed in the flesh. You know, all these so-called theologians who deny the incarnation, it's like 
why do you even bother? Why do you even, you know, nothing in the gospel works if Jesus of Nazareth is not God in the fullest sense of the term. Nothing in the gospel works unless he becomes the last Adam, a true man. And why is it so hard to believe that God is able to do that? The incarnation. You know, I've heard preachers um, at times, especially at Christmas, they'll uh, say, we're going to talk about the incarnation, but the incarnation is not the important thing. The important thing is the cross. It's not a baby in a manger. It's a cross. It's a savior on a cross. There's truth to that, but I don't think there's any reason to say it that way. Because that cross is meaningless. If that baby in the manger is not God. In the flesh. And, you know. I have heard I don't. I don't dwell in scholarly realms. I'm proud of myself because I can read. Um, but I've heard of scholars secular scholars who've who've read the first 18 verses of John and said that it was the greatest thing ever written the greatest thing ever written make much of the incarnation you'll hear me all the time saying make much of the cross make much of the incarnation spend yourself trying to explain to God's people what it means. This Christmas, talk about a babe in a manger. But oh, spend many, 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 many hours trying to somehow show them the glory of it. The glory of it. He was revealed in the flesh. Especially when you put that in light of something like Isaiah 6. But that one that he saw was revealed in the flesh so that children could draw near to him so that he could suffer and die. Absolutely astounding. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated, literally was justified um, in the spirit um, or by the spirit. And what does that mean? Well, it, it's very hard for us to determine exactly. We know this, that the Spirit of God bore witness to who Jesus really was and what Jesus really did. Now, how did he do that? Uh, there were two primary, well, we could say three primary ways. Um, we could even go to four. So let, let's just keep adding them together. The spirit ascended upon him or descended upon him at baptism. That was a miraculous event. But then the spirit empowered him to do many miracles. Many, many miracles. The spirit validated him, vindicated him. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say to everyone, 
I am the son of man. It's another thing to raise the dead. It's one thing to say your sins are forgiven. It's another thing to raise the dead, isn't it? It's one thing to say I am the Christ. It's another thing to stop a storm. You see, to turn water into wine. Um, the Spirit vindicated him in that way through signs and wonders. Some would say the greatest vindication. Romans 1 talks about this a bit. He was raised by the Spirit. He was raised by his own power. He raised himself. The Father raised him. The Spirit raised him. It was a Trinitarian work. We have a song in English. Up from the grave he arose. Even as a little kid, I would sing that and just, I don't know, would just get all excited. With a mighty triumph for his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. That's why reformers didn't have, they loved the image of Christ on a tree. Paul said that that image was portrayed before the Galatians. But the reformers didn't have crucifixes with Jesus hanging on them. Why? He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. And that was a vindication of the spirit. You say, well, you said four and you've mentioned three. We, we never need to forget the importance of the day of Pentecost. Another vindication of the Spirit. He said he was going to the Father, didn't he? And he was going to send another comforter. The day of Pentecost, though unique, was a great sign of indication that he had sat down at the right hand of the Father and that he sent forth his Spirit. So he was vindicated. But here's something that I want you to see. There is a another sense in which every time a soul is regenerated. How we have not understood how miraculous that is. What a miraculous, miraculous thing. That vindicates him. Every time a vile sinner of great renown is converted every time a little child is converted. He's vindicated. He's vindicated also when we walk by the Spirit. We do not walk in the flesh. Now all these are minor things, but they do add up, don't they? So he was vindicated in the Spirit he was seen by angels that um, we have the times where, of course, at his birth, Luke talks about the angelic choir of angels speaking with Mary all throughout the gospel accounts. We have angels ministering to him. But I think that the more important idea being conveyed here is that this is not a thing. This is not a big thing 
just for our realm. This is the biggest thing in every realm. Remember angels, Peter tells us, they lean over to get a better look. They were witnessing this. This Christ event, brethren, listen to me. There's nothing greater. I don't care whatever realm you're in, whether it's the realm of humanity, the realm of the angelic or the realm of the demonic, or if there is any other realm out there and knowing the character of God and his infinite wisdom, there's probably every kind of realm that we could never imagine. All of them have their eyes turned toward this. And for you to lay this aside in your preaching, to talk about minor things like prosperity or health or politics. My goodness, you need to be smacked. <laughs> Do you realize what a privilege we have? Angels lean over and long to look at, gaze upon what we see. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. But this proclamation among the nations, I think that we can look in the book of Acts, we can look in church history, and we realize something. This is not a static thing. What do I mean? Okay, he was proclaimed in Asia Minor, so there's no longer any need to proclaim him in Asia Minor. As a matter of fact, the places where he was most proclaimed at first need him once again proclaimed. But what it's saying is that this is not some sectarian religion. This is not just for the Jewish people. God has always had an eye to the world. Even with Abraham. He'd be a blessing to the nations through his seed. The nations would be blessed. The nations are in such turmoil right now. There seems to be so much need in so many ways. But the greatest thing that you and I can do for the God for for the nations. Are to proclaim the Prince of Peace. This is not regional. It's not sectarian. It is universal. And the angelic interest shows that it's cosmic. Not only is there no place in the physical realm where this is not the most important thing, there's no place in any other realm where this is not the most important thing. And to think about it, you've been called to proclaim the most important thing. Kings and wise men, prophets, they longed be able to see what you see and hear what you hear and speak what you speak. All the wisdom of Solomon. It's nothing but dry clay pebbles compared to one gospel message preached by a six year old who understands it. And you've been called to preach on incarnation and um, impeccability and his death, his atonement, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his coming again. 
all these glorious themes have been given to you. What are you going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? That is a very important question. It says he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Let me kind of use a modern vernacular here to describe uh, If you look at Quebec, listen to the secular media, television, entertainment, whatever. If you look at the number of genuine Christians there are in Quebec, it doesn't seem like much. If you do the same in France, if you do the same in the United States, where I just heard a poll this morning that the most recent generation, about 6%, has something of a biblical worldview. When you look in that microcosm of just what's around us, especially in the West, you think, what's happening? Is Christianity, like they say, a dying religion? But if you take 2,000 years and you look at everywhere in the world right now, there's one thing you can say. Christianity is the biggest thing going It's the biggest, most comprehensive, most universal thing going. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. God has an elect people. He will gather every one of them. And that gathering is much larger than what you would ever believe. Another thing I want you men to see that is so important. I would assume that there are two groups of people with regard to you that you've ministered to. Some to whom you've ministered and you have seen fruit in their lives. Others to whom you've ministered and maybe they moved away or you met them on a bus, you never saw them again. I don't think I would be out of place to probably say that the fruit you have not seen is much larger than the fruit you have seen. God likes surprises. He loves to lavish. You should be greatly encouraged. Not even a cup of cold water given in his name. For the sake of him, for the sake of his people, will lose its reward. Sin, it is true can do exponential damage. It seems like, you know, even the sin of Hitler continues to go on even till today. But does not the scripture say where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So if sin can have an exponential harmful effect, how much does grace have an exponential positive effect? If one evil word can do great damage, how much does one good word, the good word of the gospel, will God's word return to him void? I don't think so. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Man, 
when he stood there at the gates of heaven and he said, be opened up ye gates, ye everlasting doors. And they were shocked on the inside. Who is this who commands these gates? What man dare lay his hand to the latch of these doors? Who is this king of glory? And he answers back the Lord, strong and mighty, open up. Now think about this. They open up the door and there stands a man. A man who commands those gates. Who enters in not by grace. He did not enter into heaven by grace. He entered into heaven by virtue. He earned it. His own righteousness. That's our brother. You know, when I was a little boy, my sister, man, she she is she is still amazing. She's amazing. Uh, she's just smart and talented and beautiful. And all those things ran in her direction when she was born. Uh, even the things I was supposed to get, I think, ran in her direction. And all my life, I was known as Erica Washer's brother. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people would say, aren't you Erica Washer's brother? <laughs> um, and I used to think, yeah, I am. She's amazing. I really didn't have a lot going for me, but I was Erica Washer's brother. My brother commanded those gates. He commanded them to open because he was worthy. So if someone says to me, hey, aren't you Jesus's brother? Yes, I am. And if someone says, what are you doing up here? I'll say what I heard Alistair Begg say a while back. I'm here because he said I could come. <laughs> I'm here because he said I could come. You see, he was taken up in glory, which if you look closely at the New Testament, that's usually followed by. That is the guarantee that you and I will be taken up in glory. Our elder brother. That's why this begins with an incarnation. Because without an incarnation, this just doesn't work. None of it does. So one day. Maybe you'll call out at those gates. And there's no reason why they should open. And then someone leans over and goes, hey. Aren't you the brother of Jesus of Nazareth? Yes, I am. Okay. Come in. So when we look, you know, 
I've said some theology today, haven't I? I mean, I've talked about some theological matters, but this is more than a matter of doctrine. It's a matter of the heart. I want to see you as a man who feels these things, who feels them. Do you see that? Doesn't just know them here, but, but feels them. You know, when he says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you know, he's not trying to divide the human psyche into different categories. Um, what he's doing is he's piling one term upon another to say with every fiber of your being, you need to feel these. But let me share it with you something, brethren. You can't feel these things without seeing your need of him. Without seeing your need of him. You know, a young preacher says, I need God to preach. Son, you need God to breathe. You need God to tie your shoes. You need grace to just go on living, you see. So I guess when we come back the next time, we'll talk about apostasy. And um, he really puts a lot of emphasis on it in chapter four, but he's not afraid of it. One thing that's real important here is there's no there's nothing naive about the biblical writers. They know hard times are always going to come. And this apostasy just. You know, people say, well, in the latter days, well, you need to understand we've been in the latter days for 2000 years. There's always been apostasy. There always will be apostasy. But guess what? Church is still standing. The gospel's still powerful. All right. All right. Well, let me pray. Oh, dear God, I pray. Please bless these men and whoever may hear this, uh, this video, please use it in their lives to draw them to you, to make them more useful servants, to encourage them, Lord, in this day of trouble, to encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.